Ladies and gentlemen, we're finishing up today our prologue to the Messiah series. And the reason we're finishing today is because following this, we'll no longer be discussing prologue stuff. We'll be discussing his arrival. And then following that, the week after Christmas, we're going to start in a new sermon series where we walk through the Gospel of Mark. And we learn more and more about who Jesus is and what he's done and his time on earth. So we can continue growing in learning more and more about him. But today is the last prologue portion. And the prologue section we're going to talk about today are two specific prophecies that talk about Jesus and what his birth would be like and where it would take place. The first is a prophecy from Isaiah 7:14, where it is prophesied that Christ will be born of a virgin. And the second prophecy is a prophecy from Malachi 5, which prophesies where he would come from. Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. It is not a list of times for us. Bethlehem in the region of Ephrathah. Same place that David came from. Let's start. We're going to see real quick about Jesus' life. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she stood, and she gave the birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them at the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they had made known what they, they had been known the saying that had, made, that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We see in the birth of Jesus where he particularly was born at. See, at that time, there was a governor. There were actually two of these that occurred. There was a governor who requested a uh, giant census be taken of all the people of Israel, which is a fun thing. People of Israel do not like their numbers being taken, mainly because in the Old Testament it says, do not number yourselves. And so they didn't like it. So during this time, whenever Jesus is being born, there are actually multiple large-scale revolts happening against Rome because they're trying to actually censor the people, censor the people. And the people didn't like it. One of them was by a dude named Judas the Galilean, who led a revolt because of this numbering, killed a whole bunch of their own people in the city, went and started trying to take over, and the Romans didn't like him, came through, wiped him and his followers out, killed them all. Actually crucified them all on a small island and left them there to die. See, Israel did not like being numbered. They hated it. It went against a lot of what they believed. 
And this all stems from this whole concept of the fact that at the time they were in occupied territory. Their land was no longer theirs. It belonged to Rome. And this is a time of great darkness and trial for the people of Israel. They did not like it. It was a time whenever they felt like they were not in control of themselves or their own destiny and that they were away from what God had wanted them to do. It was basically a time of darkness and bleakness and blankness, which is interesting because Malachi, this gentleman is a contemporary of Isaiah about 30 years after him. He's prophesying before the people of Israel go into exile, but he's prophesying about things that are going to occur. And one of the things that happens in Malachi's prop or not Malachi, Micah's prophecies, is that Micah has this fun thing where he takes and he juxtaposes this things are going to suck with things are going to get better. Things are going to suck, things are going to get better. You will be taken out of your land and sent to somewhere else. You will be restored. God will not be with you for a time because of what you have done. He will be with you again. You are choosing not to be his people. He will make you his people again. Malachi goes back and forth in this whole concept of what it's like to recognize the fact that times are going to suck, but something good is going to break through. And so in Malachi 5, we're starting into one of these breakthrough points. Things are horrible, but things are going to break through. Malachi 5.1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege the land against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Bad thing, right? The ruler of Israel is going to get struck on the cheek by the people who are mustering against him. Good thing. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up unto the time, until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall be returned to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into our land and tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with their sword and the land of Nimrod with sentences. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Seems like an interesting little thing. Hey, stuff is bad. Everything is breaking. The people of Assyria and other lands are going to come through and destroy Israel. But don't worry, a ruler is coming. He'll be born in Bethlehem in the same place that David was born. And even though we're this broken time where we lack peace and where there is uh, worry and darkness and famine and brokenness throughout the land, this one will come forth who is from the ancient of days, who is from eternity old, who will step forward and restore Israel and bring all of its tribes back together, who will make peace. He's a ruler who's coming who will break enemies but be a person of peace, which is really funny and interesting. Bethlehem is not the place we usually look to for an awesome ruler. Do you know why? Bethlehem is a super tiny little backwoods hodunk area. Bethlehem is not even the canton of Israel. Right? Bethlehem is probably the Columbiana of Israel. Right? <laughs> what, Salem better? Is that better? All right. Minerva. All right, there we go. Bethlehem is the Manchester of Israel. All right? I grew up in a small town that's now called New Franklin. 
uh, New Franklin was Manchester when I was there because it wasn't even a city at the time. Whenever it became a city, it was then voted the most boring city in Ohio multiple years in a row. Closely followed by Green, which is the place we went to have fun. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Bethlehem is that kind of place. It was tiny. Whenever you hear things like in Matthew, whenever it says that Herod went and he had all of the infants of Bethlehem slaughtered because he was worried about this king who was coming, and we think that's ridiculous. We don't hear anything about these thousands of kids who were probably killed. Probably a dozen or so, maybe less. Really small town. Really small area. King's killing all the people in one small area. Sadly, not uncommon during this time frame. People killed people a lot. Even more interesting is that this is the city which God said to Samuel, go there, find a man named Jesse, and of his offspring, I will create a king, a dynasty that will reign. And Samuel's like, okay, and went. And he met this man, Jesse, and asked for all of his sons. And his sons came, and all of his sons are big, strapping people, farmers, awesome, right? People who could be very kingly. Samuel's like, nope, not that one, nope, not that one, nope, not that one. And from this man, no king could be found at first. And Samuel's like, is this all of your sons? And Samuel's, Jesse says, no, I've got one more. He's out in the field. We don't want him. He's a tiny little guy. He's a runt. He doesn't do anything. They bring in David. And Samuel's like, you, you're going to be king. Anoint him. Send him off. The smallest person in the smaller town, the least of these that one could think of, is the one who God chose and said, you are my chosen. I will use you for my glory. In Micah, the same thing is said of the king who will to come. Let's back up here, back up, back up. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The ruler who is to come is also like David in that he is not someone that is coming in his, he's not going to be chosen by the people, he's not going to be selected by them and picked to be their king. Whenever the people ask and cry out for a king, you get a person like Saul. Whenever God picks a king, you get a person like David. There's one coming from God who is not one they would expect, who's going to rule and reign. And it's going to be in the midst of heat, of discord and turmoil and famine and brokenness. And it's actually really kind of ironic. This is fun. Uh, this is written like Micah is written during a time of extreme turmoil and brokenness in the land. And whenever uh, <laughs> God sends uh, Samuel to go and find David, it's during a time of brokenness and stuff in the land. The Philistines are there. There's a whole bunch of routing happening. People are not doing well. The king's not doing good. It's this time of extreme brokenness, right? Anyone here know what Bethlehem means? Close. House of bread. So not close at all, actually. But still, house of bread. Do you know what, what Ephrathus means? fruitfulness. So in the middle of this broken, dark, everything is horrible time, 
God says, don't worry, from fruitfulness and from this land of plenty, I will bring forth plenty in a way you couldn't imagine. You see, God brings something from nothing and makes great things out of it. You want to hear about something else he brought from nothing and made great things out of? Fast forward. In that day, an angel appeared to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This woman named Mary was a virgin. She was visited by an angel and said, you, a person who has never been with a man, are going to have a child. I'm going to bring from you something unexpected, something that cannot be expected. God is going to bring from you, not the angel. I should make that a little more clear. God is going to bring from you something unexpected. Please know, guys, uh, we may think, oh, that's silly. We know that can't happen. They weren't dumb. They also knew it couldn't happen. This wasn't a, we're smart enough now to understand that's not possible. No, people totally understand the mechanisms by which kids occurred. Maybe not every individual small aspect of it, but they knew that you needed this and this for this to happen. Right? Right, So the basic timeline and timing, they understood enough that that's why uh, David, whenever David again uh, got Bathsheba pregnant, it's why he real quick brought home Bathsheba's husband. Because they knew the timing well enough that if his husband husband wasn't there, they'd be like, oh, this isn't your husband's kid. People got this stuff. We know it. The fact that Mary was a virgin whenever Jesus was born was not something that was born out of ignorance on their part. This was wholly unexpected. Enough so that Joseph was all like, maybe I shouldn't marry you because we haven't. So where did this kid come from? And an angel had to show up and tell Joseph the same thing. Oh, don't worry. He actually is faithful to you. This is of God. In Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, close enough, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Interesting, fun thing. Do you guys want to know something really kind of interesting about this verse that I enjoy? The word in Hebrew for virgin there doesn't mean virgin the way that we usually hear it to mean. It actually means young maiden or young woman. It has nothing to do with whether or not they've ever been with a man. It's basically all age-related. And likely, whenever Isaiah was writing this, the person he was thinking it meant was his wife. Because, as we read further along in these stories, Isaiah and his wife have numerous kids that are named in such a way to be prophetic names over the people of Israel. But whenever we get to the Greek, the word that is translated into into the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, is the word that means person who has never been with a man. Not just young person. And then whenever you read in the New Testament, we see that Mary is not just a young person. She is a young woman, but she's also a young woman who's never been with a man. Isaiah probably had no idea what his prophecy meant. Does that freak you out a little bit? 
make you say, I don't know how I feel about that. What does that mean about the Bible and its accuracy, things of that nature? Can I tell you a secret? That concept is one of the most comforting things that I have ever heard in my entire life. The fact that Isaiah had no idea what he was saying and Jesus so used it to explain what he's doing in a way that Isaiah could never fathom. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. And do you know why? Because there's a ton of times whenever I have no idea what I'm saying. And I have no idea if the saying matters or has a purpose or is able to be used by Jesus. Oh, it can be used by him. Now, fun story. Pretty much all of the people who were coming beyond this, uh, who were reading Isaiah's prophecies, especially the uh, rabbis who would come afterwards, would read it and say things like, yes, he used the word for a young woman, but for a young woman to have a child is nothing special. And he's talking about the Messiah. So he probably actually is speaking of someone who was born of a virgin, as we read in the Greek. It's probably bigger than Isaiah even understood, which actually makes sense. Whenever there was a friend that I had who used to try and explain what prophecy is like in Scripture, and this is what he used as his descriptor. He said, imagine you are standing on a low hill, looking out over this beautiful forested valley, and you can see little rises and hills coming at you as you're looking at it. And there's just like, you can see right ahead of you, just like this one hill, sort of like the hill Malone sits on, right? In case you guys didn't know, biggest peak in Stark County is right over there, guys. But off in the distance, past some forest, past a stream, past a river, you can see in the very far back, just at the very edge of your distance, some hazy mountains in the distance. And prophecy is like that. You're looking forward. You can see some things in sharp relief directly in front of you. Isaiah's speaking about his life. But echoed beyond it in the distance is something much bigger and greater. You can only get a little bit of a handle on. Like you won't fully understand until you arrive at that point. You don't get what the mountains are like until you're standing in the mountains. We didn't get what Isaiah was saying until we were standing at the threshold of what Isaiah was prophesying about and it came about. Real quick thing too, this is also how I read things like Daniel and Revelation and all the other random crazy prophecies that people have trouble with in Scripture at times too. Try and look at what they were saying to the people who could see them most clearly first before trying to apply them to far future things which they probably couldn't understand what they were even saying. Read Revelation in first century context before trying to read in the 30th century context, whatever you want to say. Right? Someone's coming. He will be called God with us which is an interesting thing for Isaiah to name someone, for Isaiah to say someone should be named. You see, all of the other names that are given are usually things like God is this, God is good, God is but this one is straight up God is with you. And whenever Jesus is born, they say, tell of people, call him, God is with us. Because just in case you're wondering, Jesus is God with us. His name, Yeshua, Jesus, literally means the Lord will save. Every name given to Jesus is a name that points out exactly who he is and what he's doing. And pointing forward to what will happen in the future. We've been looking through prophecies in the Old Testament. We started with a wide, wide basket of people that could be pulled from. Pretty much any offspring of Eve. 
someone who we're not saying is evil today. And then we see Abraham, and we see a little bit more clearly someone who is of the line of Abraham will be the one to whom all the nations will go. And we move forward a little bit more clearly, and we see someone who's in the line of David will be the person to whom this death. We see even more clearly someone in the line of David who's born in Bethlehem, much smaller group. And just a little bit even more clearly, someone who meets all those criteria and also is born of a virgin. A pretty select group. Narrowing down, narrowing down, narrowing down, narrowing down until you can see just who we are expecting and who we're waiting for. And then whenever that waiting for hits, the people of Israel weren't dumb. They knew it. Whenever the three wise men came from the east, came from likely Babylon, and came in to pay homage to this king whom the stars had foretold would be there, they showed up in Jerusalem and said, hey, we're here about this guy. Some king's supposed to be born. We don't quite know where. Where are they supposed to be born at? And talked to all the scribes and Pharisees in the area. And they all come in like, well, priests are Bethlehem. So you're going to go and look. And so they went and they found him. Israel knew this is where he was coming from as well. Israel knew. And he was rejected and despised by those who came to rescue. He was broken and humbled by and for the people he came to save from their humiliation. He was given over to death and accepted death on his own terms so that we wouldn't have to accept death. He told about this. He explained what he was going to do for years and years and years and years before he died. Hence why, hearkening all the way back to the very first sermon we had in this series, whenever the two men are walking on the road to Emmaus and wandering forward, and learning about who, and, and grieving over what has happened to Jesus, and sad about what had occurred, that Jesus could come up to them and be like, hey, let me explain to you everything that you can know about me from what has occurred in the Old Testament. You see, everything there points to him. He is the center. my easy takeaways for this one? I know sometimes I've been trying to do good takeaways that were very easy and very practical. Sometimes practical takeaways are less worthwhile. Here's my real takeaway for this one. Jesus is the center of everything, which means he should also be the center of everything about you. Take a moment and consider your life how you live and who you speak to, uh, the things that you are willing to say about yourselves, the things you're unwilling to say, the things that you hide about yourselves, the things that you're unwilling to talk to people about. Take a look at all of that and ask yourself, is Jesus the center of this? Whenever you're at work, is Jesus the center of your work? Whenever you're at school, is Jesus the center of your work at school? Whenever you're speaking about your relationships with either friends or spouses or uh, significant others or whatever, is Jesus the center of those relationships? 
you think of the way you deal with people you don't like is Jesus the center of your relationship with that person? Is there anywhere in your life where Jesus is not center? If that's the case, welcome to the arena, first of all. Hi. There's plenty of places in my life where he's not center, too. What we do is we recognize it. We say, you know what? This is a part of me that is not quite where Christ wants me to be yet. This is a part where I'm broken, where I am not living up to his potential and his glory, and where I need his salvation and help. So have you, just real quick, can anyone here think of a place where Jesus is not central in their life right now? If the answer to that is no, I can't, think a little harder. I found one. <laughs> I found one by that admission. All right. <laughs> but then your next step is this. Confess to Jesus that that is part of you that is unglorifying to him, that falls short of his glory. That's a part of you that is sinful. We all have parts of us that are sinful. Our goal is to recognize them, hand them over to Jesus, ask for his help in overcoming them, and then strive to live more and more like Jesus in those areas. So if you have one, take a moment. Tell him, Jesus, this is a place where I have not made you center in my life. Take a moment and do it. wisdom and love and mercy for anything you need to not center in Jesus. Ask him to break the sinful parts of your heart so that you could more fully glorify him. And thank him for the fact that he offered himself to you knowing full well you could never perfectly do this on your own. And now take this moment and remember this. Jesus came for us. For you and for me. He glorifies himself by saving us. Which is wonderful and amazing and good. We don't have to be perfect because he is perfect. We don't have to have our lives completely figured out because he knows our lives intimately, intimately. We don't have to fully comprehend the goodness and greatness of his majesty because he has taken that goodness and greatness and used it for our benefit. If you're a follower of Jesus, his spirit lives in you. His spirit empowers you. 
the Spirit gives you the ability to recognize the sinfulness of your worship, to recognize your great need for him, and to pour out that need for him over and over again. It's called conviction. It's wonderful. He does it not just for us as followers of Jesus, but he does it for the whole world. That's why people feel conviction for the things they do to us, regardless of whether or not they are followers of Jesus. We can use that conviction as a tool to recognize places that we need to be more like him. And to ask for his assistance. And to pray for his blood to overcome us. Don't be afraid of that. If you feel conviction, thank Jesus for it. And ask how you can be changed because of it. And ask for his spirit to empower you so that you might have that strength. If you're not a follower of Jesus, know this. He loves you right where you're at. He loves you regardless of who you are, what you've done. You could have murdered someone before you got here, and Jesus still loves you. One request. Please don't murder people. Eh, just whatever. So did David. So did many a people. Just try not to, right? If I could, another takeaway, no murdering people, right? Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, Jesus would still love you. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter where you've been. There's no place you've been that he has not been. There's nothing that you have undergone that he could not understand. And he loves you completely through. And he died. He accepted and gave up his own life so that you might have a relationship with him, regardless of where you're at. He doesn't expect you to be perfect because he knows he is perfect. He doesn't expect you to be uh, him because you can't be. What he offers, he offers freely. And what he offers is his life. Life everlasting and a relationship with him. All he has to do is accept who he is and what he's done. He is the promised one who came to save. And he did so by living perfectly, never stepping a foot wrong, by dying accepting on himself something he never deserved on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to taste it. That death, while it will still touch us until he returns, will not have victory over us because it did not have victory over sin. And we have to remember that he had that victory in his resurrection. In his resurrection, he broke the power of death in the world for all time. And when he returns, it will be completely and utterly different. And we will too. If you know that and understand it and believe it and thank him for it, you are saved. Now take this, follow Jesus. Week after him, throughout Africa, everything in this theater. In every place you are, in every area of your life, week after him. And know that there's not a place you can go that he has not preceded you 
question, is that a place you can sink into where you can't sink down? All right, final takeaway. Last one, then I'm done. I promise. You know how Isaiah didn't probably know exactly what he was saying whenever he said a virgin will be born? Because he likely thought he was just talking about a random young woman, possibly his own wife. He imperfectly spoke his message, which is interesting. And God still used it to perfectly explain what he wanted people to know. Hey, guys, are you ever afraid about telling people about Jesus as a follower of his? You ever worried that you won't be able to perfectly explain who he is and what he's done? And that if you can't perfectly explain it, you might as well not say it because you might get something wrong and everything will be broken forever. You ever feel that way? Don't, don't worry. He can use your imperfect speech just as well as he can use his perfect speech. Don't be afraid to tell people about Jesus because you don't feel like you might know. You may not know. Be safe to say. And hopefully you won't be the only one speaking to that person because the Holy Spirit will be whispering into their heart just as great as mine. And I'll be explaining things far greater than you ever could have imagined. say that for this reason, guys. I know it sounds crazy, and I hate even admitting this because of the way the word has this connotation in our culture, but we're technically an evangelical church. We believe that people need Jesus. We believe that we, they need him more than they can ever understand or imagine. And that means that we are called to tell people about Jesus in every area of our lives. Those that we know closely, those that we don't know closely, those that we love, those that we don't like very much, those who would be considered our enemies, we are to tell them about Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be a part of a certain political party. It doesn't mean you have to follow any certain worldly ruler. It means you follow Jesus. Now, the evangelical church as a whole may have at times forgotten that, but we don't. Jesus is who we tell them. Jesus is who we proclaim. Jesus is who we share. Go tell people about him. Takeaway two. Takeaway out. Thanks. I'm done. Jake's out. So what up, Jake? I want to point out here, it is only 1137. I am still on time. What that means is that as long as you follow dogma, that's a fancy word of saying this is what makes you a Christian. These are the beliefs that we hold. And so those beliefs are that we believe that Christ literally lived the life that he did, that he was fully God, fully man, that there was a virgin birth, that Mary genuinely surrendered herself to the spirit so that way she could conceive Christ, that he died, resurrected, and returned again. Those are the things that we should be arguing about and proclaiming in our faith. Your thoughts on um, sexuality, your thoughts on your thoughts on political parties, that is not dogma. 
that does not make you a Christian. Those are things we can talk about and debate about. That's fine. But that's not what unifies the body. What unifies the body is whom Christ is. That's one of the beautiful things is that it is not by creed. It is not by our ethnic race. I mean, even though we have pictures of white Jesus, he wasn't white. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we do have a creed, though. That's true. Um, but that's one of the things I want us to focus on during this Christmas season, even during communion, is this unification of the body. And so if you have conflict with somebody in this room or even in your family, address that. As a wise man told me, he's like, you're called to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. And peacemaking requires an action. And so oftentimes in your own personal body, if you have a headache, you do something about it. You take medication, maybe you take a nap, you take action. And so in the same sense in our church body, let's do that as well. If there's conflict, let it be reconciled. Be peacemakers. This is what we're called to do. And one of the beautiful things about our faith and about our God is that he doesn't force it on us. That's why we do communion this way, is Christ presents himself broken and poured out, but there's still action. You gotta get up, you gotta move, you gotta do something. And so we do communion this way. And so what I want us to reflect on as you think about the dealing with conflict and unifying the body is also the aspect of how I said God doesn't force himself on us. Like this happens with Mary. The spirit was, you know, the angel presented himself or presented the spirit and presented God to Mary. And she surrendered. Her response was an action of surrender. It wasn't just this, this happens. And we have this in Acts in our Bible study in uh, last week in Acts 19. You hear about a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because previously all people had heard was the repentance of John. That to repent from your sin, turn from your sin. But they didn't accept the forgiveness of your sin that only Christ can bring. And literally it's not just this mystical force power. Or, I mean my son's super obsessed with Star Wars. But that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself indwelling us. Oftentimes we degrade it. There's the Father that we hold up high. There's Jesus that we hold up high. And there's like this Holy Spirit that's just down here. But Christ says that I'm gonna send you something greater than if I was here. And that thing like literally indwells in us that we have to surrender to. We have to walk with it. We have to be unified as the body of Christ. And so we talked about it last week and this is what I want us to meditate on is how do we do this? How do we show this to our families? How do we show this to the people in our church? Well, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We take up our cross and follow him. We forgive 70 times seven. That's infinite we are called to forgive. We stop casting stones. We love our enemies. We let our light shine. We feed the hungry. We don't return evil for evil. We visit those in prison. We clothe the naked without conditions. We uh, house the homeless. We welcome the foreigner. We care for the sick. We love as we have been loved. We make disciples, and we take heart in Jesus' work upon the world. This is what we're called to do. These are the actions we do as Christians and followers of Christ. So I invite you to be unified as the body. In the name of the Lord, we pray. Please feel free to.